Welcome to this week's episode of What's at Stake, a Penta podcast. I'm your host, Christina Pearson, a partner at Penta based in Washington, D.C. I'm here today with my colleagues, Managing Director Andy Williams, based out of our London office, and Director Liza McIntosh, who's out of our New York office. Given our topic today, COP28 and global efforts to combat climate change, it's especially fitting that we brought together different Penta perspectives from around the globe. Thank you both for joining today. We should note that we recorded this conversation on the morning of Monday, December 11th. It was the last day of COP and it was starting to wrap up. However, since that recording, we've been watching as the last day of COP went into overtime and a debate over the final language, whether fossil use should be phased out, down, or no specific language at all, started to erupt. That exchange demonstrates the importance of language and the relevance of understanding the stakeholders of COP, concepts we discuss in much depth in the episode. As an addendum to that episode, we wanted to address a couple questions here. And Liza, why don't you help me out by jumping in and telling us where we sit on Wednesday morning, the 13th of December, with COP and what's happened there since. It's good to be here with you, Christina. It's a historic agreement. The New Deal calls on countries to accelerate a global shift away from fossil fuels this decade um, in, quote, a just, orderly, unequitable manner, and to quit adding carbon dioxide to the atmosphere entirely by mid-century. It also calls on nations to triple the amount of renewable energy they use, like wind and solar power, installed around the world by 2030, and to slash emissions of methane, a greenhouse gas that is more potent than carbon dioxide in the short term. For our listeners who haven't been following COP28 and its buzzwords quite so closely, it may be worth pausing here to define the key terms of the agreement. Phase out, this phrase we've seen negotiators haggling over this last week, refers to a dramatic reduction in fossil fuel burning down to zero or as close to zero as makes little difference by 2050. This year, we saw more than 100 countries agree to support a phase out of unabated fossil fuels. Phase down is a weaker term indicating that fossil fuel burning must decline without specifying by how much or by what means. And that's in keeping with the final language we're seeing in the agreement this morning, Christina, a commitment to transition away from fossil fuels in our energy systems this decade in a just, orderly, and equitable manner. No previous COP text has mentioned moving away from oil and gas. This compromise really does represent a more forceful assertion of countries' commitment to cutting greenhouse gas emissions even as it steers clear of that original hope for promise to phase out fossil fuels, um, which we saw draw the ire of Saudi Arabia and other oil producing nations earlier in negotiations. In our original episode on Monday, we talked a lot about how with always a place where things could turn on a dime, that things could develop and change very quickly. And this one did not fail in that regard this time. It certainly definitely changed in the waning hours of that. And as we sit here Wednesday morning, I think a lot of the things we talked about, about the uh, accomplishments of this COPS in the episode that we previously recorded still hold very true. But it is worth taking a moment and thinking about it 
in the, the last 24 hours and what the implications are of this agreement and what the big takeaways are from that agreement and what does that mean for the future? Why don't you give me your thoughts there? Yeah, it's an important question. And I think it has shifted slightly from um, what we saw at the end of last week and, and earlier this week. This is a draft that um, leans into the recognition that countries will chart their own paths in a nationally determined manner. It makes clear that countries work to help the world make those deep, rapid, sustained reductions in GHG emissions should be based on this principle of common but differentiated responsibilities. So I think we can expect to see a more concerted commitment to providing funding to developing nations with finance and technology transfer to support economic growth alongside rapid emissions reductions. The one thing I do know is this will probably not be the last word. The thing about COP is I, I suspect we will continue to discuss these issues and probe them next year at COP29, don't you think, Eliza? I think I will be seeing you here this time next year, Christina, for another exciting <laughs> and tumultuous conversation. Thanks so much. Thank you. All right. That's our update from COP on Wednesday, December 13th. Let's go back to our previously recorded discussion from last Monday. Thank you so much for joining us. Before we talk about some of the key developments that have transpired in COP28, I'd like to take a moment to talk a little bit about the location of this year's conference, the United Arab Emirates, which is one of the world's leading oil producers. Liza, why don't you start us off? What has been made of that selection and what are those implications for all the stakeholders involved? Yeah, I think it's a great place to start off this conversation, Christina. I think it reflects a, a key tension of this moment can we reach net zero while also maintaining fossil fuel production? While oil and gas producing countries have hosted COPs for, this is the first time the COP president has also been the head of a major oil company. Um, Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, or ADNOC, is the world's 11th largest oil and gas company and is expanding its oil and gas production. It's expected to spend $150 billion over the next five years and also to devote $15 million to low-carbon projects. We should note that Dr. Al-Jabbar is also chair of Mazdar, a major renewable energy company with solar wind and, and other grid projects. There have been a lot of challenges in all of that, both from a substantive and policy perspective and communications point of view. Why don't you delve a little bit into uh, what the implications of all that are? What do you mean by that? Yeah, you know, I think climate diplomats are very savvy users of language. We also we, we often see them using terms that are intentionally vague and, and high level. There are benefits to language that sometimes feels abstract. It can be a tool for generating consensus when a word means two different things to two different people, it's often easier for two people to arrive at an agreement. But that cuts both ways. It makes commitments sometimes a little bit less enforceable, and it means we're sometimes going off and, and doing two slightly different things or many different things. Take the phrase unabated fossil fuels, which you've probably heard in conversations 
about one goal for this year's COP for countries to agree to phasing out all unabated fossil fuels. Unabated here refers to the burning of fossil fuels while resulting carbon dioxide uh, or, or other greenhouse gases, emissions released directly into the atmosphere adding to global warming. Abatement has become shorthand for how big a role carbon capture and storage should play in the fight against global warming. That is an umbrella term for technologies that aim to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere or catch emissions and store them before they're released into the air. Um, So you might think that negotiators are discussing the phase out of fossil fuels writ large, but actually they just mean using CCUS and DAC, developing technologies to counterbalance emissions. Phase out and phase down are, by the way, another good example of this kind of language of, of climate diplomats. They sound very similar, but they mean very different things. I love that we're getting into this so quickly because as as communicators, we are obsessed and fascinated by the precision of words and how they're used, their tone, their context, and how your audience is going to take it. And an important aspect to all this is that it's not just diplomacy, it's also communications uh, for the other stakeholders there. It's not just the agreements that they are agreeing to as uh, countries and the diplomats are negotiating, it's also how the other stakeholders who are very actively involved in these conversations deploy their words and and how they interpret those words about how the conversation is going. Andy, why don't you jump in for a second and talk a little bit about what you're looking for in terms of phrases and words as a strategist that the communicators are looking for in this and what are the implications for strategy? Yeah, Christina, I think presentation is so important when it comes to all of these global conferences, whether it's COP or otherwise. Yeah, that statement that's made in the final few days is very, very important to how how the conference will be determined and whether it will be seen as a success or a failure. I think in terms of strategy, businesses need to be really clear about the stage they're at in their decarbonisation journey when it comes to attending COP. So, If you're a financial institution with significant investments in fossil fuel, you're kind of compromised. And so you need to acknowledge up front where you have that stake in the game, that skin in the game, and then be clear about the steps you're taking to mitigate your contribution to climate change and the role that you're playing in the overall debate. So I think for most businesses and organizations like our clients who are attending COP, a successful COP is setting out a clear strategy for the future and being really specific about the commitments that you've made and the steps that you're taking to deliver on those commitments. You know, before we move on, and I do want to get a little bit into some of the policies that have been discussed in the past week or so, but one final thought on words and communications. One thing that was really striking to me in COP28 is how intentional uh, all the stakeholders involved, companies, countries, nonprofits, NGOs, others have all been about the words they're using and trying to be really making sure that they are being clear about their needs and talking directly to each other, trying to set goals that are achievable and that can be worked on together. I think that it is, whereas in 
years ago that COP was sometimes accused of being too ivory tower, too aspirational in the goals and the words that we're using. I think that the language and the actions here have been much more closely aligned in this whole process, which is which is very interesting. I think folks have been very careful to avoid overstating what they are doing and to also, frankly, use their words to set the context about what the difficulties will be and how they're going to work with other stakeholders in partnership to make it happen. I think that was a powerful way that words were used this time. Andy, do you want to jump in there? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that that point you make about using intentional language is absolutely right, because what this is really about and what I think COP is about now is accountability. It's about countries being held accountable for the actions they're taking and businesses being held accountable for the commitments that they're making. And once you put it out there on a platform as big as COP, if you don't deliver on those commitments, there are lots of civil society organizations, activists and others who will have made a note of that statement and they're going to be holding you accountable. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of accountability, Let's, let's delve into some of the previous agreements and, and sort of where we are on that, a lot of the discussion. And, and part of this COP was also keeping on track with goals formally made. So why don't we start with the, the Paris Accords? They set a target to keep warming as close to 1.5 uh, Celsius of warming as possible. And as of the latest projections, there have been improvement from some of the most dire scenarios, but we're not on track to meet that goal. That was definitely discussed a lot here in this COP. How does that impact how companies and organizations are showing up at COP? How has that affected the conversation? With every year that passes, I think meeting that 1.5 degrees C target becomes just that little bit harder. And obviously, there's a significant and vocal community, as we've said already, of activist organizations and others who are ratcheting up the pressure on, on companies to do more. And so as that pressure increases, um, organizations are being asked to go further and faster. And I think there's a great challenge, which is on the one hand, showing that you're listening and that you take the issue really, really seriously, but equally not bending to the pressure to make maybe rash or perhaps unachievable commitments that you are going to be held to, as we've just been discussing. So it's a really, really tight and tricky position for businesses to to be in. And I think it's about being clear about your strategy and holding to the line, I suppose. I think that's such a key point, Andy. And it makes me think about some of the highlights from this year's COP as it starts to wrap up. Um, We've seen just a flurry of pledges from countries and companies about uh, methane and other super climate pollutants. So we saw about 50 Oil and gas companies pledged to slash their methane leaks by 2023. Um, critics, uh, we've seen them crying greenwashing um, to our early, earlier conversations about precision in language. But recent technological advances in methane monitoring, including satellites, drones, and handheld detectors, um, can help the international effort to, to help hold these these. Um, companies accountable to their commitments on on methane abatement. We've also seen six of the world's biggest dairy companies committed to reducing and publicly disclosing their methane emissions as part of a new global alliance launched at this club. And closer to home, the Biden administration recently finalized a rule 
that is expected to reduce methane emissions from the country's oil and gas industry by nearly 80 percent by 2030. One thing that was very interesting in all those things that you talked about, there was a lot of innovation in there. And I think that was one really interesting takeaway from this COP was that the talk about new types of solutions were much more present, you know, in talking about methane, that, you know, how you track it is definitely adoption of a, a new approach, a new technology. There was a cre- creativity to it. There was also talk in the food and agriculture space, which to me was a huge, huge takeaway from COP28, just how the integration, the acknowledgement of our inability to reach our goals if we don't put more emphasis on food and agriculture, that uh, so many countries signed the pact to include it in future planning. But also a lot of the innovations that you're talking about were really in the food and agriculture space, tracking methane. There was also drought-resistant seeds and finding ways to increase the um, connectivity so that folks who are in a more remote area can talk about signs of drought, signs of disease, signs that can be fed into data systems that can help ensure that interventions happen faster, using technology to speed up the spotting of problems in order to have an intervention. So for me, a really interesting takeaway from COP was how that emphasis on more innovation and more creative solutions, the the breadth of it, it wasn't just in the food and agriculture space, which you and I are talking about. I think there was increased conversation about solar and wind power, renewables, I think that that's a very positive acknowledgement that uh, it's going to be more than one sector and more than one stakeholder that's going to be a part of innovating and how we have to have wider adoption of those in order to be successful collectively in these goals. Andy, were there any uh, takeaways from you that you want to uh, touch on? Yeah, I mean, and just on that, I think that technology is such a huge opportunity. Yeah, if we're going to tackle climate change, there is a great economic opportunity in front of all of us. And in the UK, there's been a lot of talk uh, in the last few years about a green industrial revolution. And and so clearly, innovation and technology are going to be at the heart of everything we're talking about here today. In terms of takeaways from COP so far, I think the creation of a loss and damage fund to support poorer countries who've been really, yeah, who've been badly affected by uh, climate change. That was a really dominant theme at COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh, and I was there last year. Actually, that fund being established is a really important breakthrough. And I think it's an acknowledgement that there are countries disproportionately impacted by climate change who don't necessarily have the means to pursue adaptation and mitigation initiatives. And it's a reminder also that at the end of the day, tackling the effects of global heating is going to be really expensive And that cost is going to have to be shouldered by the wealthiest nations. So I think it was kind of inevitable that this would happen, but great that it has finally happened at this COP. Well, I think that that's an important point that you're raising at the end about um, nations that are impacted by climate and how other nations are going to have to step in and help them with creative solutions. And by that, I mean that there have been instances where a lot of the debt that is taken on by countries like Barbados and the Caribbean and other places is, is related to climate-related weather emergencies and hurricanes, other things. And so there's this, there's this cycle where they are taking on increasing debt in order to adjust the effects of climate, but that's also hurting their ability to implement 
innovative solutions or new technologies or do things that will stop that will stop the effects of climate change. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I think that one of the most I, so I love it wasn't just that damage fund that was discussed. I, there's some really innovative finance mechanisms that have been talked about. The Nature Conservancy worked with Barbados to basically co-sign the refinancing of some of their debt in order to free up $50 million that Barbados is now going to use to rebuild coral reefs. That is really a wonderful way of public-private stepping in together to work for something that is mutually beneficial, but also acknowledges that Barbados is disproportionately affected by some of the damages of of the, the climate damages and how we should step in and, and help. It's just, it's been a fascinating, it's been a, a multifaceted and nuanced conversation around topics. It wasn't just the loss and damage fund is my point. It was also the fact that they're talking about new mechanisms related to finance that were created themselves. There's an innovation, not just in technology, but in other areas too. And that was yeah. that was pretty exciting to see. Let's talk a little bit about some of our clients and some of the stakeholders that we work with and thinking about COP, both this one and future ones. There, we all, all of us had a lot of discussions about what was the role appropriately played by them in, in this COP28. But I think that they're are at their, at their core, I think that it's really important that many uh, nonprofits, advocacy organizations, and companies um, recognize that COP is the place where countries are coming together to reach agreement on climate action, and they want to be a part of that conversation. In this COP, I think that you had a lot of companies spending time about what was going to be the most useful um contribution they could make. It wasn't necessarily to go and to host a, host a reception. They were thinking really about the actions that they wanted to do, what how they wanted to show up. And so, Andy, why don't, you, why don't you jump off here and start talking a little bit about some of the considerations that, as we were talking with clients and such about how you show up at an event like this and how you can meaningfully, intentionally show up in a way that is useful. Yeah, I, I think there are a couple of things here. Firstly, there's something about being in the room where it happens. You know, climate action is, by definition, it's a global effort. It requires governments and businesses to be aligned on the need for action and pulling in the same direction, really. And COP is the ultimate annual forum for discussion. So there's one aspect, which is that for business and organizations who have a role in this in this debate and in this initiative to, to combat climate change, then if they aren't there, if they aren't in the room, then they're not seen to be taking the issue seriously. So there's a presentational aspect for them. But I think also, in terms of the practicalities of it, it's a serious opportunity to have meaningful conversations with decision makers. One of the things that I saw at COP last year is that so much of the real action takes place on the sidelines, on the margins, in conversations between senior business leaders and government representatives talking through all of these really complex challenges and working together to try and come up with ways to to, to tackle the issue. The, the, the people and among our clients who get the most out of COP have a clear strategy in terms of the people they're targeting to meet and to spend time with while they're there. And then they put in the time and the effort to ensure those meetings happen sort of organically, inverted commas. In fact, I was just speaking today to one of my clients who was at COP in Dubai last week 
And she was talking about doing 7 a.m. till 11 p.m. days. And actually, that is what it's about. It's about putting the time in, going into those rooms, rubbing shoulders with the right people and, you know, making the most of it. Everything Andy said is is exactly right. I think it's always a question of, of starting with research and, under, and a clear understanding of your goals. So we want, when we're having conversations like this with our clients, we try and get a sense for what are the two or three things that you would want to accomplish at an international climate summit? And is that going to be possible in the forum as it you know is, is set up this year? If the answer is yes, then it's a question of really rigorous due diligence. So looking at who is going to be in attendance at COP. And, you know, that has become actually a, a real undertake, undertaking. We saw a record 84,000 registered attendees this year, sorting through, you know, who's the right person for your client to be sitting down with, what forum should they be engaging with, what panels should they be sitting on, um, is just unfolding at a new scale. I that's very much the sweet spot we operate in, right? Which is that um, COP is not something you go and wing. You don't just show up there and hope you meet the right people. You really do need to put in the research and time ahead. You need to think about what your goals are. You need to figure out what you could meaningfully accomplish. You need to figure out who the where, I mean, there's so many meetings. You have to figure out which ones are the ones that you need to, that are the priority to set up. You have to map out those relationships. You need to understand, frankly, where other folks across the table are coming from and understand their pain points. And so you can think about innovative solutions to partner with them. And I think that both of you are making a very good point here, which is that you should, you need to, if you go to COP, it's a commitment of not just the time that you're there, but also the research and legwork that you do ahead of time. And also, frankly, the commitments that you make there and what you take out of it about what you're going to do with it. And those are those are the most successful organizations are ones that see this as a long-term part of their engagement with audiences and others in, in order to be meaningful. These are not conversations that you come in and out of at all. By the way, do either of you have peers who are there on the ground, folks that you know, either companies or others who are there on the ground now? What is, what is it like with 84,000 people? I imagine it's quite hot there right now. <laughs> so I'm told, I think it's been a hectic experience. I understand it's much better organized than it was last year. I have to say that last year's COP was a little bit shambolic and quite difficult to navigate, actually, in terms of the practical the venue, the building, quite a confusing and, and just a vast, in terms of scale, a vast, vast operation. So as you said, Christine, the preparation aspect, as with so many aspects of what we do with our clients, preparation is absolutely key. Just the basics of knowing how to nav- navigate the, how to navigate the thing and actually having people who've been there and done it, who can help advise you on how to get the most out of the, out of their time there. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, to echo that point, I think I've been hearing just about the frenetic pace of negotiation and planning and the way that plans or plan statements or commitments can turn and change at the drop of a hat. So we've seen clients need to revise entire communication plans, or at least sort of go to a plan B or C really quickly as events have evolved. So I think 
you know, really it's a question of, can you get enough sleep while you're there? Are you, or are you just working, you know, pretty much 24 seven as you account for, for changes to, to programming and, and commitments? Yes. And then and, and looking forward, I think that the next one, Andy, in 2024, they announced the location. So where where we our planning will begin immediately after this podcast. Where are we going and, and what do we expect out of that one? It, it will. It's going to be in Azerbaijan, which I think, again, will be controversial. Big oil producing state, in many ways, one of the founding countries of the oil industry. And actually, there was there was some quite heated and intense negotiations around who was going to host it. It was due to be somewhere in Eastern Europe, Azerbaijan, kind of on the fringes of Eastern Europe and the Middle East. So, yeah, as you say, preparation will begin immediately for next year's COP. And actually looking even further ahead, COP30, purely or partly by virtue of it just being a round number, but the 30th edition is going to be such a milestone moment. So in 2025, we're going to Brazil, obviously, They've recently had a, a change of government where the previous government had had been seen to be really holding back the tide uh, on progress on climate change. So a fascinating location for COP30. So I'd like to end with a little forecasting here. It's been an interesting couple of years in climate overall, not just COP, but other things as well. And so we're going into a hectic 2024. It's the end of the year. And I would love for you all to give me a little predictions here. What is your prediction for climate and sustainability momentum next year? And what are you watching for and excited about in this space? Hmm. It's exciting to look ahead. Um, last week, we heard the UK's Met Office warn that next year's average global temperature could breach a key planetary warming benchmark, 1.5 degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit above pre-industrial levels. That would mark not a permanent crossing of the barrier. Natural fluctuations, you know, would make it dip back in following years. Um, But I think we can expect that to drive urgency and serve as a framework for conversation at next year's calendar of climate events from climate week here in NYC to COP29. And that may also mean that we're going to be hearing more about ways to curb near-term warming, like slashing emissions from methane and other super climate pollutants. Carbon dioxide, we know, can remain in the atmosphere for centuries, while methane lasts only a decade, which means that eliminating leaks and other emissions reduce warming in the short term and avoid some of these crucial tipping points that that we all worry about. I'm going to slightly dodge this question and uh, say that I think it really, really depends on the outcome of some very significant elections uh, across the world next year. We've obviously got the presidential election in the United States. If that goes the way of Donald Trump, I think we can expect to see a certain uh, approach taken by the United States on climate. In the UK, we have a general election next year. The current government has rode back on its climate commitments. If we see a change of government, that will have an impact too. And then, of course, in Europe, we have European Parliament elections and a new European Commission. The EU is a significant driver of many of the policies relating to combating climate change. So again, a very substantial moment. So I think when we look back and when we get that, get together this time next year to have the same conversation about COP29, then perhaps we'll have a clearer picture when, when those elections have taken place. 
Very true. Though I would, speaking of looking back, though, I, I think one interesting thing to think about is that going into 2024, I believe no matter how elections turn out, there will continue to be momentum around this area. I think that there is, we have reached a, a certain tipping point. How fast that goes will certainly be, how fast in the directions will certainly be influenced by these elections. But I also believe there's a lot of work being done, so much work being done that the momentum's continuing. It's not like 2012 or 2016 when, you know, going into those elections that, you know, that could really make a very real difference in how certain nations participated. It's, it's also sort of interesting. I don't know if you've noticed we're, we're here, we're, as we're taping, we're still in the waning days of COP, but I will say that the Chinese and American envoys have been meeting together a lot. No one knows what they're saying, but that's actually a very, that's usually a very positive sign historically, having two of the world's biggest nations putting their heads together and having meaningful conversations has been usually a sign of future things to come and that engagement. And so I, I you want you jump in here, but I do think I do think that as opposed to maybe 10 or 15 years ago, I I worry why I'm concerned about elections and, and where they go and how they influence the tone of an issue. I don't worry they're going to stop the momentum. And I think that is a change from where we were 10 years ago. I, I think that's absolutely right. I completely agree with you there. And actually, that comes back to the, in some ways, to the importance of business and the private sector here. Yes, it's about countries coming together, making agreements, and making commitments. But the role of some of the world's biggest businesses in driving this forward is is huge, and they will continue to do that and be put under pressure to do that, regardless of who is in power. Yeah, and I think I will end with my my little prediction here, which is I think that. To me, 2023 and climate was about um, the meeting of aspiration and execution. I think that uh, in this area, there have often um, historically been big goals, you know, focus on getting folks to sign up for really, really big goals and perhaps not as much work around the practical solutions of how you actually get there. And, and so I think that... 2023 to me was the moment where I think that the goals that are being set and driven towards are ones that are big, but that there's a lot more time being put in, in intentionality, put into acknowledgement of what the barriers are to it. You know, acknowledgement that we're going to need innovative solutions, that we're going to have to work together, whether that's um, being creative in diplomacy or the private sector stepping in or a public private project. And I think that, you know, We've always had a lot of aspiration that it led to perhaps some people overstating what they were going to do in greenwashing. And, and when folks overstated it, we had execution sometimes was not an inclusive conversation. It was about what one or two countries were going to do. And it really needs to be about how we're all helping each other. And so I think that it's aspiration and execution have now met for practicality. And so I think 2024 is going to be the year of really driving those they may be more modest solutions, but they're going to have large impact if we do all of them because there's no one size fits all solution to this issue. And so I think that that's a very exciting thing that there are so many different areas. We're now talking trade. We're now talking fruit and ag. And we continue to talk about global emissions. We have 
the not just the largest cop, but we also had a cop that, frankly, was at, in an oil-producing country. And that, I know, while it attracted controversy, those are important people to have at these tables and to have as part of those discussions. And so I think that those are all hopeful signs for the future. All right. And with that, Liza and Andy, we're going to have to make a promise that this time next year, we will be meeting again and talking about the about COP and going into COP30, what our predictions are going to be. So thank you very much for a fun conversation today. And to our listeners, remember to like and subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at PentaGRP. I'm your host, Christina Pearson. And as always, thanks for listening to What's at Stake.